transitioning from the book of 1 Samuel to the Sermon on the Mount throughout the year this year at various intervals. So I'm praying that the Lord works powerfully through the Sermon on the Mount um, in the book of Matthew. But before we begin this sermon, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I would ask you to, to do your best to pray in this moment. I know sometimes we can slip into the motions of just hearing someone else pray, but I would ask you to pray that the Lord would speak to your heart from really Jesus's most famous sermon that he's ever given. We're going to do an overview of that today. So let's pray right now and, and pray to the Lord in your own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to sit under your teaching just as Real human beings sat under the public ministry of Jesus so many years ago. We pray, Lord, that the unfolding of your words would give us great light and great heat, and it would change the way we think about our lives and the world. Help us to have attentive hearts and minds. Help us to be sensitive to where your spirit is leading us to be transformed in light of what your son has revealed. I pray for grace to preach clearly. I pray for grace for those listening to be able to drink deeply of your scriptures and profit from it. We dedicate this time to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is the most commented upon or exposited portion in all of the Bible when you look at church history. If you were to go back and dig around in the old sermons from old bishops or look at the writings of monks, the Sermon on the Mount is what's commented upon the most. In fact, St. Augustine, he wrote a whole commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, this is the perfect measure of the Christian life. A scholar a little bit closer to our time, D.A. Carson, he said this when he reads and studies or teaches the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I feel like I'm just a moth drawn to the light, but the light is so bright and so intense and so searing. I'll just stop there. You know what happens. The Sermon on the Mount is incredible. My hope today is that we would be refreshed by it again, that we would be exposed to it. Before we begin to walk through verses at a time this year, Lord willing, it seems fitting to do an overview of the whole thing just to get a glimpse of it, to see how the parts are related to the whole, to see how the sermon fits in the flow of Matthew and really the Old and New Testaments together. If there's one danger that I think we're at risk, if we don't have an overview sermon, there's a danger I think that, that lingers and that is, we're prone to treat the Lord's Supper like Samuel and I treated the salad bar at Jason's Deli earlier this week when we had lunch. We walk through the salad bar. We're each going on different sides. Same ingredients in front of both of us. We come out the other side and we sit down. We're talking about life and ministry. I look over. Oh, he's got mushrooms in his. I don't have any mushrooms in mine. We have different toppings, different vegetables, different dressings, different greens. Totally different salads with the same salad bar because we just got to pick and choose what we wanted. And sadly, myself included, many Christians treat the Sermon on the Mount just like that. 
okay, I'll take some of the Beatitudes, give me the Lord's Prayer and the Golden Rule. Thank you. I don't want the other hard stuff about sin and judgment and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we need an overview sermon like this this morning so that we first see what we're prone to pick and choose and like, but also prone to forget or neglect and not keep connected together. And unlike a salad bar, I mean, imagine how silly it would be if you got every single ingredient, everything piled it on your plate. Unlike that, you're supposed to take it all here, okay? So let's, let's begin. Turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book in the New Testament. Turn there with me. This is found on page 809, 809 in the Bibles underneath the seats. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. But here's what my intention for us this morning is. We're going to read the beginning two verses, so Matthew chapter 5, and then the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7, so that we get a feel of the bookends of the whole sermon. And then we're going to walk through section by section at a time, getting tastes, little snippets of the Sermon on the Mount, hopefully to string these all together. It's an overview, but it's purposeful. Let's begin. Matthew chapter 5, the first two verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, hold your breath, wait for it. Let's flip all the way, flip all the way over to chapter 7, the last two verses. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen. That's the beginning and end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's divine commentary of the setting and what it was like and what the people responded to this sermon. And there's a few things we need to say before we even look at the sermon itself just from that. Firstly, we're almost invited to, to think, wow, this kind of sounds like Moses when he went up on the Mount in the Old Testament to teach God's people authoritatively. Our minds are invited to go there, but we should remember that when, when it says at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus went up on the mountain, we're not told which mountain it is. In fact, the word there could simply mean a hillside or a place of elevation. It could even be a grassy hillside. But the key is he sat down, and that's the common posture of the day for a teacher to teach those who gather around him. And those who are gathered around him are not enemies getting ready to stone him and strike him. Their disciples, did you see that? Chapter 5, verse 1, his disciples came to him. And this is meaning more than just the 12. You've heard of the 12 disciples. This is meaning, at the time, a general term for all those who were following Jesus. And this is the first public record we have of Jesus' opening sermon, really, in his ministry. And it's fascinating. Before we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to see something about the theme that runs through this whole sermon. Lest we get confused and miss the forest for the trees, 
We need to see the main theme here because if we get the main theme, the effect on our lives will be the same effect that was on the people. Do you remember those last two verses we read? The people were astonished. In other words, they were amazed. They were at their wit's end because Jesus taught with not stage acting and he danced around. Jesus didn't teach in a way that brought people up forward and just rebuked them. Jesus didn't teach in a way that people started levitating and hovering around as he taught. Jesus taught so astonishingly because of his authority. And we get a clue for what that means because it said not as their scribes. The scribes were the common teachers of the day, the preachers. The Pharisees would often uh, help the scribes interpret away according to how they wanted. But the scribes would often lean upon the shadow of Old Testament prophets. They would say things that Moses said, but they couldn't speak authoritatively to interpret them with the same authority as the scriptures themselves. They had man-made rules that they would attach to their teachings. They would speculate about things, but not Jesus. Jesus is not standing in the shadow of anyone. Jesus is the one who wrote the scriptures. Jesus is not in anyone else's shadow. The Old Testament is in his shadow. He's the fulfillment of it. So he can speak about Moses because he instructed Moses. And Jesus can teach in a way where he can say things about the law and stand upon the law and make further statements about the law. Jesus can speak authoritatively about God and who he is because Jesus is God. And of course, the people don't know all that at this time. They just simply know no one has ever spoken like this man. So as we work through this sermon this morning, my heart and my prayer is that you would be astonished at the sermon. The best way to do that is just to look at it with me. Before we look at it, let me, let me give you a common thread that runs throughout this whole sermon. And it's this, it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. If you're taking notes this morning, this would be something particular to jot down, a definition of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule and reign. In a technical sense, we could say God's kingdom is the entire universe, everywhere, every inch, every molecule. Everything is under God's kingship, his lordship. But in the scriptures, when kingdom is mentioned, it's a subset of that larger kingdom. Really, it's his redemptive reign and rule, meaning where holiness is operative in his moral agents or his creatures. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So human beings or angels not your dog, not your cat, not other pets you have, but moral agents. When we are obeying the will of God, we see the kingdom of God manifest. So God's kingdom talks about that specifically. That's what it means by kingdom. And here's the reason I'm bringing out this word kingdom so early. Let me show you how kingdom sandwiches this whole sermon and runs through the sermon. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. 
Matthew 4:17 says, "From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And then a few verses later in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, "He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people." And then even afterwards, when this sermon is complete and chapter 8 begins, in chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, even in verse 11, Jesus is talking to a centurion, and he responds to the centurion's faith by saying, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is talking about the kingdom before And after this sermon, and he talks about the kingdom all throughout, and each snippet of verses that we're going to look at this morning mention the kingdom. So with all that being said, this core theme of kingdom, let me tell you what in my study of this Sermon on the Mount is is a snapshot of the whole structure in light of a kingdom theme. And then I want to show you this kingdom theme and really why it matters for your life. Maybe you're just here and you're being polite for a guest or a friend. You're sitting in church and you think, okay, I'm going to hear some things about God's kingdom, so what? Maybe you're a Christian and you already know you're a part of God's kingdom and you're thinking, what's what's this sermon going to have for me today? This sermon and this text is meant to astonish you about God's kingdom and then transform you by Jesus' proclamation. So here's the structure that's meant to then have a scaffolding by which you can be astonished. Here's the structure of the whole sermon. Jot these down. These points will be the the six features of the sermon that we'll walk through briefly. Number one, Jesus speaks about kingdom identity. Kingdom identity. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Second section, kingdom ethics. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. Kingdom ethics. 5, 17 through 48. Third, kingdom piety. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Kingdom piety. 6, 1 through 18. Number 4, kingdom wealth. This is chapter 6, verses 9 through 34. Kingdom wealth. Number 5, kingdom relationships. This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, kingdom relationships. And then lastly, number 6, kingdom discernment. Kingdom discernment. This is chapter 7, 13 through 29. These are incredible topics to consider. When we're talking about kingdom identity this morning, we're talking about the idea of Jesus wanting you and I to have certainty on our identity as a Christian and knowing whether or not we're blessed. When we're talking about kingdom ethics, we're talking about how Jesus wants you and I to understand rightly the law of God so that we will be in accordance with his law ethically, morally, in our decision making. When we talk about kingdom piety, we're talking about the fact that Jesus wants you and I to have our religious devotion done rightly. When we're talking about kingdom wealth, we're talking about the idea that Jesus wants you and I to be eternal-minded 
when it comes to our goods and our stuff and our possessions. And when we talk about kingdom relationships, we're talking about the idea that Jesus wants you and I to see how we're supposed to treat other people. And when we talk about kingdom discernment, we are getting at the idea that Jesus wants you and me to consider our life holistically, the path our life is going down, and consider it wisely. And Jesus is giving all this instruction about the kingdom. If you want to package it all up, you could say this is a kingdom manifesto, a public declaration of motives and aims of the kingdom. The reason Jesus is doing this is because there's a lot of misconceptions about his kingdom. The book of Matthew as a whole was written to a Jewish audience who had a lot of baggage about what God's kingdom would be like. And here in this first sermon that spans three chapters, it's the first block of teaching. Scholars, commentators, study Bibles, they all have seen rightly that, that there are five huge blocks of teaching in the book of Matthew. This is the first one. Because right off the bat, Jesus wants his disciples, those who would claim his name and claim to be a part of God's kingdom, to know what the kingdom is about. One final comment before we walk through this sermon briefly. Here's the main idea, the core idea of this entire sermon. Let me give this to you in a sentence. What we have here is a transformational kingdom manifesto meant to make wise God's people as the end of the ages has dawned in Christ. It's a long sentence. We have a kingdom manifesto here meant to make wise God's people as the end of the ages has dawned in Christ. And by making wise, I don't mean you just simply think a little bit different and you're smarter. I mean wisdom in the sense that you fear God and that knowledge is put to action and you live differently. And your life flourishes because you're living wisely. You've been transformed in light of the vision of God's kingdom that you've seen and heard proclaimed. So let's walk through this. You'll need your Bible open. We're going to look at each one of these six sections. We're not going to read the entire section, but we're just going to read a few verses, make a quick comment that's an overview type comment. And then at the end, we're going to string all this together. And hopefully let it land on our lives, okay? So let's look firstly at kingdom identity. To get a sample of this, follow along with me as I read chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll stop there. Do you have certainty on your identity? Do you have certainty on whether or not you're blessed? What we just read is Jesus' definitive word on whether or not you're blessed, whether or not this matches up with your life. 
Did you see there the word repeated over and over again? That word, blessed. That's the word our kingdom identity is wrapped up in. Blessed. The Latin word, beatus, is where we get that word, beatitudes. More on that later. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll have a whole sermon on the beatitudes. But today, it's suffice to simply say that this word for blessed in the original means more than just being happy or fortunate, but it means to be blessed by being well-off, flourishing, having God's divine favor upon you. That's what it means. Let me ask you, do you know whether or not God's divine favor rests upon you? I don't know about your life. I just know Jesus just told us. So match your life up with what he just said. It's interesting here that in the New Testament, uh, we can bless God. We can say, you know, the blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as New Testament writers say. Or God can speak of us as blessed, as he might do in Romans 4.8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Or Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. But here, primarily, there's this term of blessing coming towards us. Remember, Jesus is speaking this. So God is saying, you are blessed if, fill in the blank of each one of these beatitudes. I wonder how you know whether or not you're blessed. Have you slipped into the thinking that a promotion at work, or if the kids seem to behave, or your spouse is pleased with you, or you got all green lights on your traffic commute to church this morning, that somehow you're blessed? If you got good grades or you have that, that boyfriend or girlfriend that you really wanted, how do you know if your life is blessed? Do you look at your bank account? Do you look to the physical health of your own body or your family? How do you know if you're blessed? Brothers and sisters, in Jesus' kingdom manifesto, he just told you. I would commend you to study and look back at those verses today. You're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. This flies in the face of the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? Sometimes on TV or other churches you hear that if you have health, wealth, and physical prosperity, that's how you know you're blessed. I don't know how well that matches up with these blessings. But Jesus then shifts gears between focusing on you and whether or not you're blessed, and he starts to make a statement where he shows he is the most blessed person of all, and he doesn't use the word blessed to show it. And that's found in verse 17. And this is our second section here, kingdom ethics. So just to get a sample of this section, let's read in verse 17. Follow along with me. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of their prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And because this is such a long section in the Sermon on the Mount, let's draw our eyes to verse 27. 
just so you can get a, a second taste of, of this section of the sermon. Jesus says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the, really the most fearful section of the sermon if you're a listener because it seems so weighty, so impossible at times. But Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. This is again where that authority comes to play. Did you notice verse 17 that, that Jesus says something there that no other human being who has ever lived, is living, or will ever live can say but him? Look at verse 17 again. I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills every command, every principle, every precept of God's holy scripture. This is why Jesus wasn't just dropped on earth as a full-grown adult and the next day dies on the cross, rises again, the mission's over. This is why he came to earth and he was incarnational in his coming as a baby. And he grew in wisdom and favor and stature with men. And he lived upon this earth, not just a few years, but a few decades. Because he's fulfilling every righteous requirement of the law. He's fulfilling all the prophecies about himself. So here Jesus is culminating the law. This reminds me of Luke 24 when he says, everything written in the law and the prophets about me. And then Jesus, with great authority, turns and looks at everyone else and says, and now I'm telling you, your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees. This is so authoritative. This section, as, as Martin Luther often commented upon, this section drives us to our need for grace, that we can't keep the law by ourselves. But this section also stirs up and encourages all of us as Christians because all of us have more striving we can do by God's Spirit to have our morality and our obedience from the heart match up what Jesus is calling for here. In terms of applying this section to our lives, one thing that we could say here would be, don't think that it's strange that the more you grow in Christ, the more maturity you have as a Christian, the more sin you see in your heart. That sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? The most mature Christians in this room, this gathering, are the ones who see the most sin in their heart and battle it fiercely and repent of it. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount gives us a glimpse of why that is, because in God's kingdom, the mere external keeping of the law is not everything. Jesus is after our hearts. And if you think that Jesus raised the bar really high in this section, wow, you haven't committed adultery, but you've, you've lusted in your heart after a woman, so in your heart you have. If that sounds too lofty of a bar, well, just remember, Jesus fulfilled this sermon himself. And Jesus is calling all of us to never pat ourselves on the back because we kept some external command 
but to drive deeper still to the heart of the matter and really be humble and broken before God. Jesus talked about the secret law-keeping of the heart just there. And now he switches gears again to talk about our secret kingdom piety and our devotion. This is part three, kingdom piety. Jesus is answering the question here, do you know whether or not your religious devotion is being done rightly? Do you know what God's kingdom asks of you in the way that you give to others, in the way that you pray, in the way that you fast? Well, let's see a sample of this. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. We'll just get a taste here. Verse 7, chapter 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is the most famous prayer in all the scriptures. Unless we forget the context here, Jesus is teaching us what kingdom prayer looks like. It's not a suggestion It's a manifesto, it's an ultimatum, meaning if your prayers don't in some way link up with these themes, not that you hit every theme every time, but if you find yourself praying about random and silly things that have nothing to do with God's kingdom or his will or his character or your daily needs that only he can provide or forgiveness or to be free from temptation, if you're praying about other things, You're not praying in light of how Jesus taught us. What a great guide and encouragement this is that we don't have to wonder what it looks like for kingdom people to pray. Jesus tells us here. And we don't have time now to talk about how that word secret comes up over and over again in this section, but Jesus keeps telling us, pray in secret. Give in a way where your right and left hand don't know what's happening. Fast in secret because your heavenly father sees in secret and he will reward you. This is a great authoritative moment of the sermon. And Jesus helps us again by switching gears again. He keeps turning to a new facet of the kingdom. And he goes from what it looks like to to know if you're blessed and keep the law rightly and be religiously devoted, and he moves right into your wallet and your checkbook. Did you notice that? Look at verse 19. This is the fourth section, kingdom wealth. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He speaks to us about positively what we're investing in, what our treasures are, and he actually speaks negatively about what we don't have or what we lack. Look with me in verse 31. We'll get another taste. Verse 31. 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What this means is Jesus wants you to be aware and have understanding about the goods and stuff and possessions you have or you don't have, to have an eternal mindset. He mentioned there that trifecta of deterioration, natural causes like moth and rust, and then other more specific, intentional, sudden causes like thieves. And he's calling us, if we're going to live in light of his kingdom, to obey this transformational kingdom manifesto here and put our treasures in heaven. That doesn't mean you physically go up there and start throwing up goods in heaven. This means that because God sees all that's done, especially what's in secret, he will reward your faith and your faithfulness. What a sweet section here. You know why? Because we're Americans. If you were to stack up America in light of the rest of the countries in the world, a lot of other Christians would point to us and say, hey, American Christians, Definitely don't neglect this part of the Sermon on the Mount because you are a wealthy country. You are wealthy people. Perhaps this might be one of the sections of the Sermon on the Mount that could shine brightest in our community. I'm challenged by this Sermon on the Mount as you are, but we're not done yet. There's still two more sections. Jesus, again, switches gears and he he turns from seeking the kingdom in light of our goods to this fifth section, kingdom relationships. And he tells us here in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7 how to relate to those who we want to pick a bone with, somebody that we see that's sinning, or even when we need to ask our father of something or how we need to treat other people. This is the section right here. So look with me at verse 12. We'll just look at one verse. Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's simple but demanding to live in God's kingdom. Because we are called to treat everyone just as verse 12 says. That's the golden rule. Now what this doesn't mean is, oh, I I wish everybody would put a $20 bill in my hand when I shake their hand. That's silly. Because then you'd put it right back in their hand. That's silly because this has to do with the kingdom being fulfillment of the law and the prophets, not the kingdom being just a whim and wish you have at any given moment. Did you see that? How it says, whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is how you obey all of the scripture's moral teaching. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. This means, brothers and sisters, that if we're going to live out the golden rule, we can't take a neutral stance or even a negative stance by priding ourselves on, well, I don't do this to other people. I don't do that to them. I haven't been mean to them. I haven't been harsh. I haven't talked back. I kept my nose clean. I I didn't meddle in other people's business. Jesus is saying something positive here. So if you want to ask yourself, are you keeping the golden rule? Think about what you have done for other brothers and sisters, not what you haven't done. 
Because he says here, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. This is an active, a forward lean verse that is so simple but demanding. This is a, a verse worthy of our meditation. Finally, Jesus switches gears again. There's more things to say about the kingdom than simply our relationships and our wealth and our devotion and our law keeping and whether or not we're blessed. The final thing Jesus has to say is about kingdom discernment. This is verses 13 through 29. Jesus has some hard words to say, but they're meant to help us be discerning. Look with me at perhaps some of the hardest but most discerning words Jesus ever spoke in the scriptures. Look with me at verse 21. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus transitions from what we say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. He compares what we say to what we do. Notice, do the will of the Father there. But then he even sets that in contrast when he says it's not just those who say they have done things in my name, but he adds that relational fellowship piece that is most foundational and essential, that drives the doing and the saying, I never knew you, depart from me. So Jesus is helping us discern here what the progression in our life is supposed to be. We're not supposed to progress through talking Christian words, doing Christian things in our speech, and at the end of the day realizing, wow, I had no fellowship with Jesus today. Jesus sandwiches this hard teaching in light of three word pictures, and we don't have time to go through them, but he talks about a narrow and wide path just before this. He also talks about a fruit-bearing tree. Then he gives that hard, discerning saying, and then he ends it with talking about building a house wisely or foolishly. So this last section really is meant to help us see our whole life and examine it so that we can live wisely in light of his kingdom. And I would encourage you to not do what my tendency is, and that is, okay, Jesus gave me a few verses to evaluate my life. Okay, this is all I need. And think that I don't need anybody else. One of the sweetest things about God's kingdom is that we're in community together. Ask other brothers and sisters around you to be honest as how they see your life and if they see you entering the narrow, hard gate that leads to life, if others see you bearing fruit, if others see you building a house wisely that will last. That's how you can know whether or not verses 21 to 23 are ringing true in your life. So to close this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is wanting us to be discerning. Jesus just gave us many different angles of life in light of the kingdom because he wants us to be awakened and convicted and humbled and encouraged to live in light of his kingdom. Which kingdom seems better to you? This one that you just heard about 
as demanding as it is, or whatever kingdom you have been stacking up this week apart from God's kingdom. As I mentioned it earlier in the sermon, but Jesus is the fulfillment of this sermon and all the law. As profound as the Sermon on the Mount is, the final thing I would say is that the Sermon on the Mount means very, very, very little, next to nothing, if Jesus didn't go to the cross and die and rise again. Sadly, there have been some in church history who have said, this is all we need, this sermon. Let's just try to go do it. No talk of sin, atonement, and redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is just the beginning of Matthew. Everything would click into place on the death and resurrection of Christ as a vindication for this is how Jesus lived. So I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, listen very closely to what I'm about to say. And if you are a Christian, remember afresh, this is what it's all about in God's kingdom. It's not, can you do this? How good are you at doing this? It's that Jesus did this. And if you claim to follow him, you'll start to look like this. So if you're not a believer in Christ and you wonder, how do I enter God's kingdom? How do I do these things? Well, you can only do these things if the gospel motivates you. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, that in his love, God created humanity. He created us as image bearers. He set his love on us. He gave us creativity. Dominion. He gave us the ability to worship him and know him and love him and serve him and be in relationship. But instead of setting our love back on him, all of us set our love on ourself. We set our love on ourself. We rebelled against his good laws. We rebelled against his kingdom manifesto. So whether it's just one command or many commands that we just read, all of us have fallen short of living in light of his kingdom rightly, of giving him glory with our lives. We've tried to make it look like life is about our own kingdom. And because God is good, he punishes all wrongdoing. He punishes any threat to his kingdom, not because he'll be defeated by that threat, but because if that threat can mock him, and he's not able to do anything about it, what kind of king is he? He's a king that can do something about any mocker, any liar, any disobedient person that would scoff at his kingdom or neglect it. And because he loves us so much, he sent the one who fulfilled this sermon to die in our place as a substitute. So he crushed his son on the cross and poured out all his wrath there. And then he rose his son from the grave. And he proved to everyone, my son has lived out the kingdom. His life is worthy of resurrection. His life has atoned for all of the wrath that I could possibly pour out on sin. He has become sin on your behalf so that you would not know sin. And rising again, Jesus, as the end of Matthew closes, proclaims, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Tell others about this kingdom manifesto. Urge them to obey all I've said, that they would look like this as well. But make sure that they don't ever forget they're not a Christian 
because they tried really hard to do these things and then they suddenly blossomed into a Christian. I died for them and I rose again. And if they take that to heart, their life will begin to be transformed and look like this. So brothers and sisters, I pray that you're astonished at what Jesus says we are to look like as kingdom people. Let's praise God for his kingdom preaching and let's pray now that we would live it out. Pray with me.